Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Mwella. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're starting a new sermon series, and I'm extremely excited about what God is going to do in this, and excited what he's going to do in me, and what he has been doing in me and my study, and excited what he's going to do in all of us together. And we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount together in the next couple of months, and uh, it's going to be a beautiful time of just listening to the, the pure words of Jesus and allowing his words to do what they do best, change and transform and challenge us. And so if you have Matthew chapter 5, and you could just keep your finger there for a little bit, um, I'm going to just say some opening remarks, and then we can get into the scripture. But there's a, there's a quote that I found, and um, I kind of wanted to share it with you. Regarding the Sermon on the Mount, it's been said this. If the church realistically accepted Jesus' standards and values here set forth and lived them out, it would be the alternative society he always intended it to be. And it would offer to the world an authentic Christian counterculture. I'm going to say that again. Regarding the Sermon on the Mount, if the church realistically accepted Jesus' standards and values that he set forth, and lived by them, it would be the alternative society he has always intended it to be and would offer to the world an authentic Christian counterculture. This is the essence of the upside-down kingdom, standards and values that should make the church an alternative society, a countercultural movement. And a way of living that is strangely foreign to the world, yet powerfully attractive. The upside down kingdom implies that God's kingdom takes a contradictory perspective from the kingdoms of this world. Statements like, in order to be first, you must be last. In order to live, you must die. To love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. All these and much of Jesus' teachings, uh, much of Jesus' teachings, turn upside down the world's ideas of power, performance, and position. You see, Jesus challenges his disciples to lead upside down lifestyles, and in leading an upside down lifestyle, they're helping to turn the world right side up. Just a couple of things about the Sermon on the Mount couple of facts that I want you guys to know before we get into it. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest piece of teaching from Jesus in the New Testament. It starts with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and it ends with Jesus cautioning his disciples to build their house on a rock and not on sand. It's probably the best known teaching of Jesus, but arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. One commentator suggests that the key text of the Sermon on the Mount is found in the middle of this sermon in Matthew 6, 8. It says like this, do not be like them. (laughs) Jesus says, do not be like them. He goes on to say, there was no single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount in which this contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. 
the followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both nominal and secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. If you have your Bibles, let's start off with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Scripture says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I want to pause there for a moment because this setting is significant to the sermon. It involves crowds, it involves disciples, and it involves a mountain. You see, Jesus had been wandering throughout Galilee, teaching and preaching in the synagogues and healing all sorts of infirmities and diseases and casting out evil spirits. And as a result, his fame spread and people began to flock to him in large numbers to hear his teaching. But they not only came to hear his teaching, but they would also bring their lame and their sick to see Jesus. You see, at this point, the buzz was going around that there was an incredible man with incredible words who had incredible power. Can you imagine the crowds flocking in against Jesus and the disciples, not just to hear him, but the sick and the lame and the poor, wanting to know what does this man have that is so attractive? And in this particular portion of the story, we're told that Jesus seeks the mountain, and he seeks the mountain as a temporary time of escape. It's okay to have a little bit of escape sometimes. Jesus was a healthy individual, and sometimes he needed to just get away and spend time with his father. So he seeks the mountaintop as a temporary time of escape, not just to rest and pray, but as an opportunity to give his disciples a concentrated time of instruction. But there's also a deeper theological meaning to the setting of Matthew's story. You see, Jesus goes to the mountaintop to teach. And it draws a parallel, if some of you remember, to Moses who receives the law at Mount Sinai. You see, Moses is the mediator between God and Israel. He enters the mountaintop. And he receives the law from God. Then he comes down and as the mediator, the go-between between Israel and God, he begins to share God's instructions, his commandments, his, his behaviors, and the way that his people are instructed to act in a world where they will be surrounded by idolatry. They will be surrounded by foreign idol worshipers. They will be surrounded by practices and things that are antithetical to the view of God. And so what God says, you are my my people and you will be different. And so Moses spends time on Mount Sinai, comes down from the mountain with a, a set of established standards to say this is how God's people are to become. Are you with me? In the same way, Jesus in the New Testament, a greater Moses, a greater deliverer, heads to the mountaintop and he begins to preach the kingdom of God. He, begin, he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount to his 12 disciples, to his people. And he not only begins to give commentary to the law, but he begins to share grace. And he begins to share the empowerment of what the church and his disciples are to become. So there's a contrast here between Mo Moses and between Jesus. And there's one last comment I want to make just regarding this setting. If you notice, there are disciples and then there is a crowd. There's a subtle contrast that's being made by Matthew here that I think has huge implications for what I want to say this morning. You see, the power and presence of Jesus will always draw crowds.
but it's the disciples that the master's looking for. And so the power and the presence and the authority and the miracles always drive and always bring in spectators. People always want to come and see. I want you to know the first part of our discipleship is a come and see part. Anybody ever experienced that? Something beautiful ever happened to you in your life? Has Jesus ever came through for you just some, in some beautiful ways that drew you to his beauty? It drew you in. Maybe you didn't know the Lord or maybe you were kind of in between and things begin to take place in your life and he began to draw you in gently. You remember that story, but I want you to know this, that there's a part of spectating that is a part of your discipleship. But at some point, he draws you in from the crowd to become a disciple. There's a point in time in your walk where you have to go from a spectator into say, I am a submitter. And so Jesus, surrounded by crowds, there to see him heal, went up to a mountaintop and brought his disciples close to share. And I just want to challenge you today, and I want to challenge you this year, this idea God is drawing you in. What is the next step in your discipleship? What is the next step? Some of you, we're all in different steps. Don't compare. Look at your own life and your own walk and ask yourself, what does God have me? Is, am I in that come and see phase where I'm just experiencing his goodness? Or is he asking me, okay, now it's time to come a little closer. I got something in my heart that I want to share with you. So for the next two Sundays, we are going to cover the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you may or may not know, but it's called the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes comes from a Latin word called beatus, and it just means blessed or happy. But you didn't know that. Christians are supposed to be happy. Sometimes we walk into church and it's like, are we happy or are we? <laughs> All right, tough crowd today. Blessed or happy. And these Beatitudes, they're short statements that summarize the essence of the entire sermon that Jesus is about to give. Now, for each Beatitude, you're going to find a, a three-part formula. You're going to find the people being described. So Jesus is going to describe a type of person. Then you're going to find a quality in that person that Jesus is going to commend. And then the blessing or the promise that comes along with that quality. So you're going to find a type of person. And you're going to find a quality that they carry. And then Jesus is going to commend that quality and then share a blessing and a promise. Are you guys with me? So today we're going to focus on the first four Beatitudes. Um, and they, these first four Beatitudes um, will focus on our relationship with God as Christians. Next Sunday we're going to discuss the latter four, which will cover our relationship with one another. So the first four Beatitudes are, in our, are, are pointing towards our relationship with God. And then the latter four will point towards our relationship with one another. So the Beatitudes are not meant to be separate, by the way. So they all are going to kind of work together and shape in together. So many of us, when we read this sometimes, we think that, oh, okay, there's one Beatitude for one type of person, one Beatitude for another type of person. As a Christian, all these Beatitudes are supposed to form in all of us. We're supposed to carry all eight. It's like, well, I have that one, but I don't have that one. All eight are supposed to kind of kind of well up inside of us. Um, it's just like the fruit of the spirit. It's like, okay, well, I'm patient, but I don't want to be kind, right? I mean, that kind of doesn't even work, right? They all have to be matured inside of us as Christians, right? We don't get to pick which one. Um, and so I just want to make sure we understand that. So this will be a two-parter, but I want you to know just because it's a two-parter doesn't mean that we get to kind of pick and choose. That as I preach, I want you to know, I want you to know, we, we want to strive and pray that all of these will be evident in our lives as disciples and not part of the crowd, but as those that are drawing near. Amen? All right. 
So let's go ahead and read that together in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read 1 through 6, and then we'll stop there, and that's what we'll cover today. Scripture says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So characteristics like poverty, mourning, meekness, hungering, and thirsting are not typical platforms for happiness. Anybody with me? Characteristics like, I'm going to say it again, poverty, mourning, meekness, hungering, and thirsting. These aren't your typical ideas of happiness. In fact, in today's culture, if you carry any one of these characteristics, you're pitied and considered far from blessed. Yet Jesus flips this upside down. What do I mean by that? First thing he says is blessed are the poor in spirit. When it comes to today's version of blessings, the world has a limited and surface level understanding. And perhaps what is most tragic in all of this is that there are many churches that have that same understanding. <coughs> in fact, there are many churches that have allowed itself to be seduced by the worldly definition of blessing. We got to be careful as disciples not to limit the blessings of God to such things as material gain, financial wealth, or the accumulation of stuff. <coughs> and I'm going to ask for some water if you can get it because I'll probably have a cough if I don't know. <coughs> Let me say that again just in case you missed it. We can't limit the blessings of God to such things as material gain, financial wealth, or the accumulation of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that these things aren't blessings, amen? I mean, it's good to get a little blessing, amen? Right? You got a raise, that's a blessing. That's all from the Lord. Thank you, sir. So I'm not saying these things are not blessings. Here's what I'm saying, and I want you guys to stay with me. These are, we cannot limit the blessings of God to these things alone. I'm not saying these things aren't blessing, but what I am saying is we cannot limit God's blessing in our life. In fact, it might be more of a blessing for some of us to lose our job. You ever thought of that? It might be more of a blessing for some, some of you to lose some things than to gain some things. Some things that you thought are a curse. Some things you thought Satan was behind, right? Some things that you know for certain. Why would God allow this to happen in my life? But all of a sudden, things been happening inside of you. Shifting has been taking place. And what you thought was a curse and what you thought wouldn't be identified as a blessing. Maybe it was even horrific. The reality is that somehow God was behind it. And it ends up propelling you into what he's calling you to do. We can't be Christians that limit the blessings just to some sort of material gain or I feel good this morning. Sometimes you're not feeling good is a blessing. Sometimes you need to feel very bad about where you're at. Some of you wouldn't be here if you didn't feel very bad about where you were. Are you with me? Some of us need to prune away the idolatry of material wealth and to find true contentment in Christ. 
I've heard this said before. We should never denigrate the blessings of God to things we can't take with us into eternity. So although most would cringe at the phrase poor, poor in spirit, the true disciple leans in and says, I wonder what the master is trying to say. Now, I want to tell you something about poverty. In the Old Testament, poverty not only meant that you were in material need, but it often referred to a humble person who had nothing else to depend on but God. Being poor in the Old Testament meant recognizing your affliction and understanding that you had no power to save yourself. It referred to a contrite, broken humility. It referred to an individual who looks at themselves not very highly but has a low ability or has a low, and, and I don't want to say a self-worth, but has, and where they're at and who they are, they begin to understand that there's something inside of me that is not right. It's a true, it's a healthy understanding of who you are not and who God is. Those who are willing to truthfully acknowledge their state of spiritual poverty. Those who understand that we have nothing to offer, nothing to plead with, nothing, nothing of which we could buy heaven's favor with. Listen, I want you to hear these quotes. I want you to find yourself. Calvin wrote this. He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. Spurgeon said this, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink ourselves low. Or maybe the Apostle John said it best when he was talking to the church in Revelation 3, 17. He says this, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I'm going to say this again, to the church in Revelation Chapter 3, verse 17, John says this, you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, as an outsider looking in, visibly, I'm sure this church lacked nothing. But for all its Christian profession, it was not truly Christian at all. Self-satisfied and probably superficial it was composed of blind and naked beggars, according to Jesus. This is Jesus' words. When it comes to the upside-down kingdom, spiritual poverty, I want you to hear this. When it comes to the upside-down kingdom, spiritual poverty is heaven's most valuable currency. It's this understanding that there's nothing I have inside of me that can buy myself into favor with God. Poor, I am weak, I am in need, and even on my best day, I'm still in poverty. Then Jesus goes on and said, blessed are those who mourn. You see, in order to prove just how upside down this beatitude is, one could translate it, happy are the unhappy. <laughs> now, of course, I don't want to translate it that way. But for much of my time in ministry, I've always assumed, and maybe you share this, I've always assumed that this phrase was referring to those who maybe were mourning, especially the mourning of the loss or a loved one that they have lost. 
But as I began to really study the Beatitudes in context of the way Jesus presented them all together, I realized I kind of got that phrase wrong, and I'll tell you why. The question this morning is this, what kind of sorrow can bring joy? What kind of sorrow can bring blessing in Christ? The answer is not the sorrow of losing someone, but the answer is the sorrow of coming to repentance. You see, it's one thing to be aware of your poverty. That's the first step. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It's one thing to be aware that you are in need of Jesus, that you are wretched, and that you are. It's one thing to know that in all your trying, you'll never be able to measure up. It's one thing to recognize your spiritual poverty, but it's an entirely different thing to be broken by it. It's one thing to know, yeah, what I'm doing, I shouldn't be doing. There's something inside of me that's calling me to greater. There's something inside of me that says, man, this is not my identity. In fact, there's a part of me that doesn't even like this. It's one thing to recognize that, man, I'm in need of something. I can't save myself. I can't stop this mess that I'm in. I need to see it's one thing to recognize it. It's a whole another thing to be broken by. It's going to be a little hard today. <laughs> you Christian believers, take the slap. If you're a non-believer here today, I just want you to sit down like, wow, okay. That's, that's good. Get them. <laughs> they need to hear this. In fact, if they looked like that, I'd probably come more. <laughs> just giving you permission. We have too many Christians, too many professing Christians in our culture that confess but aren't contrite. They confess their sins, but are not contrite about their sins. What do I mean by that? And look, I don't want to. I don't want you to. I know someone's going to feel small in here today, but I just want you to hear the whole story. Confession is a formal statement admitting guilt, but contrition is a state of feeling remorseful and sorrowful about it. Matthew chapter four verse seventeen says this: From that time on, Jesus began to preach, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." Did you know Jesus preached repentance? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, godly sorrow brings repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation. And that salvation leaves no regret. regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance should be a combination of confession and contrition. To simply know something is wrong or even to admit it is not repentance but to experience brokenness over that action that causes you to walk away from repeating it. That's repentance. The truth is, as Christians, we need to be moved more by the evils of this world than by the evils of our very own sins. A man by the name of John Stott wrote this in a commentary. Hear this out, please. We evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes make light of sin. There's not enough sorrow for sin among us. That stung me too, okay? But in the end, here's the promise for those who mourn over their sin. They'll be comforted. They'll be comforted with the only thing that has the ability to relieve their distress. Forgiveness from Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So it's almost like, you know what? It's like, man, Lord, where are we? I feel like I'm, you're plunging me. You want me to be sorrowful? You want me to go deep? You want me to know that I'm poor in spirit? Like, at what point do I start feeling better about myself? But I want you to know that the Lord promises you that if you walk in this path with Christ, 
that he'll send you that one thing that will bring you comfort, and that's his forgiveness. Because when you experience the forgiveness of Christ, you're empowered to live such a victorious life. You really are. You really are. And look, and you might have to experience it over and over again, right? But I, what I'm saying is when you're walking in an understanding of forgiveness, it's a beautiful thing. Are you guys with me? Here's the promise for those who mourn over their sin. But be comforted. It's the only thing that has the ability to relieve their distress. Forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the meek. The Greek word for meek means gentle, humble, considerate, and courteous. I want you guys to listen to this because this really spoke to me. In the upside down kingdom, it's those of a gentle spirit that will inherit the earth. Perhaps just the opposite of what you and I think. After all, we're told that if you want something, you have to take it. That everything is a competition. And only the best, and only the strongest, and only the most assertive, and only the biggest and the loudest and the ones that are willing to compete will take what they want. Now, if you're an athlete, this is something you've lived your life by. Some of us are very competitive. I'm not going to look at a particular person who's extremely competitive, but there are some people in this room that are very competitive. And I know this, and I am competitive. In fact, I had an argument with someone the other day. I'm competitive. And here's why this really spoke to me. Because we think that if you want it, you got to take it. And we live in a world that tells you that if you are going to be, if you want something, you got to be domineering and aggressive. That the people that stand, those are the true leaders. But Jesus says... You know, it's funny, we elevate leaders who are commanding. We ele elevate leaders who are eloquent in speech, and we put down the quiet ones and the gentle ones. We admire those who rise to the top out of ambition and ego, yet we fail to appreciate the humble. And we incorrectly assume that meekness is weakness. And some of you carry around in your understanding that when a, you meet a meek person, that they somehow don't. Measure up. Here is some advice that I want to give us this morning. We must be careful not to call weak what God calls strong. You may be admiring the wrong people. You may be comparing yourself to the wrong people. Man of God, woman of God, meek, mellow, gentle. You may want to be like someone else who's strong and loud. And the Lord is saying, wait a minute, have you read what I'm saying here? Are you with me? You may be admiring the wrong people or putting down the right people. And this is for some of us in here today, and I really speak to myself in this. Uh, you might be insecure about yourself. People around you, you may want to be more like them. But remember, don't despise your meekness. Meekness, not a weakness. Strength. Remember, some may boast and throw their weight around. Yet real possession will elude their grasp in the end. But the meek, although despised or ignored by the domineering in this culture, the meek, they'll possess the earth. Isn't that amazing? For those of us that are strong and loud, and I'm not saying we're, we're good too. <laughs> but I'm saying is, well, here's what we can learn is we can learn from the meek. They don't necessarily need to learn from us. And I put myself in that category. Are you with me? So the question becomes, how do I become meek 
Gentleness and humility only come when one begins to become self-aware. You see how this is all? You see how this is all like when, you, when you're aware how lowly you are, you have nothing to boast about. Why are you so full of yourself? If you're full of yourself, if you're arrogant, if you think this about yourself, you think highly about yourself, it's probably because you have a lack of spiritual poverty. You see how all of these are kind of. When we learn to honestly evaluate ourselves before the Lord, recognizing our poverty and mourning and repenting, then we are on the road to meekness. Lastly, meekness is not just a recognition. Weakness is not measured just by recognition, but it's measured by our response to things. Here's a difficult test that I have failed many times. I want to give you this morning, okay? I was reading this, and I was like, oh, man. God, I'm going to read this test to you. Just It's a meekness test, and it just says this. There's a general confession in the church that says this. As a member of Christ's church, I should recite <laughs> and I should call myself a miserable sinner. So if you look at the confessions of the church, one of the confessions is to confess that I am a miserable sinner. After all, repentance first involves us recognizing our need for a savior and confessing that we are a sin and that there's nothing we can do, that only Jesus is perfect, right? And so in the church con uh, confessions, there is this admittance that I am a miserable uh, sinner. Now, here's the test. I am perfectly happy to recite that because I believe it's absolutely true. It doesn't pain me or cause me any problem inside to agree with the idea that I am a miserable sinner. But let someone else come up to me and tell me that I am a miserable sinner and I'll most likely want to react in a very miserable way. I wrote down I most likely want to punch them in the face. Right? So, like, it's easy to sit down before the Lord at, the bed, at your bedpost like, Jesus, I am wretched. I am miserable. I need a Savior. But if somebody at church says, hey, sister, come over here like this. You are wretched. <laughs> you are a miserable sinner, right? Don't tell me that. Now, I want you to listen to this big. It's kind of funny. You're like, well, wait, isn't it a little bit different? But here's what I want to say. Um, in other words, I'm not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I'm more than willing to acknowledge before God that I am. See the gentleness, the humility that just rises up from that? I am not prepared to allow other people to think of me or speak of me what I am more than willing to acknowledge before God that I am. There is a basic hypocrisy here. There always is when meekness is absent. Meekness is most visible and most easily measured. Not in your ability to recognize, that's a start, but in how you respond when even others recognize how powerful they are. Lastly, we're going to finish up here. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I want you to know something about righteousness, and we're cruising right along here. We're almost done. I want you to know something about righteousness. Righteousness in Scripture has at least three aspects to it, okay? There's a legal aspect of righteousness in Scripture. There's a moral aspect of righteousness in Scripture. And then there's a social aspect of righteousness. So I'm just going to explain these three terms, and then we're going to land this plane, okay? 
Legal righteousness is this. This is a justification, and it refers to a right relationship with God. When you're in the court of law and the Lord declares you not guilty, you have a legal status or a legal right that says you are not guilty. Now, the Jews pursued this kind of righteousness but failed to attain it. Now, ask me why. <laughs> they failed to attain it because they pursued it in the wrong way. They made the mistake of trying to establish their own righteousness instead of submitting to Christ's righteousness. See, there's a legal standing that when God, we go in before a court and they say not guilty. And there is a problem spiritually when we are trying to establish our own righteousness through our works. And the problem is, is this, is that you can't do it because our works, spiritual poverty, when we recognize that even our best works are still loaded with selfishness. And we have to submit ourselves under the righteousness of Christ. And when we step into the court of the law, God does not, the Father does not see our righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of God, of Jesus. And that was the mistake the Pharisees made. They tried to bring their own righteousness to a court. Are you with me? So it's legal righteousness. Second one is moral righteousness. This has to do with character and conduct, behaviors, which please God. But Jesus warns us to be careful, not to get fooled. There is a difference between Christian righteousness and religious righteousness. Religious righteousness is an external conformity to a set of rules and has no power to save. While Christian righteousness is expressed by Christ as an inner righteousness of the heart, mind, and motive. This is the kind of righteousness that we should hunger for. And this is the kind of righteousness that Christ through his spirit gives us. Last one is social righteousness. It would be a mistake for us to only think of righteousness as a private and personal matter. But social righteousness is a concern for seeking man's liberation from oppression. Together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law and the courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family affairs. Thus, as Christians, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness not just in ourselves, but for the entire community. This church is supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness for this city. We should be a people on mission, seeking to reach the lost for Christ and to build the found in Christ. We should be a people who feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. We should be a people who does things both locally and globally. We should be a people that go on mission across the street and across the world. I want to conclude this morning's message with a quote from Martin Luther. He says this, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out of it if that is where you have been. And to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. What is required, he goes on, is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. That's a long one, but I want to say it one time. I think it's so powerful. The command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out if that is where you have been. And to offer your hands 
and your feet and your body and to wager everything you have and you can do. What is required, he goes on, is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the rights, despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. Poverty, mourning, meekness, hungering, thirsting are perpetual characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. If we look back, we realize that the first four Beatitudes reveal a progression. Each step leads to the next and presupposes the one before. We acknowledge our need for God and that we are spiritually bankrupt without him. This is poor in spirit. Next, as a result of that acknowledgement, we mourn at the corruption of our fallen nature. We mourn at the corruption of our sin that our sin brings to us. And we, by that mourning, come to a place of confession and contrition before Christ, realizing how wretched we are, like Paul would say, that there's nothing I can do. As a result, we become less arrogant, less prideful, less domineering, and more meek. Hungering and thirsting for something greater something better, something only Jesus can satisfy. The Beatitudes is a roadmap, not just to Christian living and discipleship, but to Christ. It's to looking more like Christ. To look like Jesus. After all, that's our call. Someone walk around, God, what's my call? What's my call? Am I supposed to do worship? Am I supposed to do kids ministry? Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to go to outreach? You know, and Jesus would say to you, just look like me. It's your call. Look like, look like me. Get with a group of people and come together and work like looking like me. It's going to be a little messy, but don't be afraid. The call is to look like me. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.